right, we're uh, continuing today with uh, 1 John, <clears throat> and I wanted to look at chapter 2. I'm not going to read all of chapter 2, but I'm going to try to get at the logic of chapter 2. But let me just read the uh, conclusion, verses 28 and 29. Now little children abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of him. I think there is an inherent logic which may escape us in John and especially in this second chapter. First of all, if we fail to understand the basic problem of this early church and and actually our own basic problem... And then also, you know, he's going to to hit upon key points here. The lust of the flesh, the pride of life, disbelief in, you know, anyone who says that Christ has not come in the flesh is of the Antichrist. And he's saying, he's posing these two things and says they will culminate in the hatred of the brother. Well, why should that be? Why should this kind of Gnostic Christianity, this pride of life, you know, why should that result? in hatred and why you know and so that's the I want to get at this logic and maybe begin with a a big picture you know if you asked what is it that about the Jews that is different from other peoples uh, I think it is the idea that that in Judaism in the Jewish faith there is this uh, drive then of connectedness there is this passion for meaning there's an engagement with the world finding god you know there's an engagement with uh, with creation with human existence with history and this is very much connected to their belief in the messiah and of course it's connected to the fulfillment of judaism in the god man in god uh, become man um the the jews are struggling against a disconnectedness from the world that can be equated with idolatry. That's what I'm going to try to show. And and as I'm saying this, I want you to keep something in mind here. The last thing John is going to say in this book is, little children, keep yourselves from idols. I think what he's doing there is not introducing a new subject, but he's saying what I've been talking about all along is something on the order of idolatry and idolatry then gets at this false teaching you know Paul is going to say something similar in Galatians he's going to equate the Judaizers and what they're doing with the kind of idolatry Stephen is going to do the same thing in his speech you know that gets him killed he's going to equate the Jews rejection of Jesus with a kind of idolatry he said you know you've always been idolaters um Judaism and Christianity have this idea of a connectedness between, you know, just the very beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Our understanding of creation is rooted in the fact that God created. Uh, God himself, then, you know, if you look at most pagan religions, what they're actually worshiping is, uh, you know, systems that are all part of nature. But what Judaism is saying and what we believe as Christians is know that the ultimate reality is a person, the person who stands behind creation. 
Psalms 19 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. That is, when we look out at creation, we see there the personal fingerprint of God. This is, an, this is a kind of a novel concept. Uh, nature itself is the context in which the pagan gods function. And, you know, it's chaotic, it's all-moral, it's usually hostile. And, but for the Jews, creation is accessible because God is accessible. Uh, the world is orderly because God is orderly. You know, it's very good, God pronounces in the creation. And we could say that Christ then is the fulfillment of this connectedness over and against the disconnectedness that is marked then by idolatry. Uh, let me say a funny thing here and I'll explain it. I believe that sin is the disincarnate tendency. Uh, sin is the tendency to in some way imagine that it's not you know, what we do in a kind of embodied sense. And this is the false teachers are saying, you know, they're the ones who John says, they do not confess that Jesus, that Christ has come in the flesh. Uh, they're the ones who will not acknowledge the coming of Christ. Uh, you know, the idea of God become man. Uh, he's going to call them uh, that they're the, of the deceiver and the antichrist. John is an unusual book and it's the deepest love book. You know, a lot of love in John, but it's also the, the, a book that is the strongest accusation against false teaching. So the opponents, you know, maybe they believe in God. They believe even in Christ. They just don't believe Christ can become a man. And they believe that, that you know, Jesus is kind of, uh, he's the man and Christ is God and never the twain shall meet. And the way that you bring them together is through a special knowing, not Gnosticism. And this Gnosticism is a kind of disembodied knowing. It's a disincarnate understanding and it's on the order of a kind of idolatrous understanding. I believe we can do our entire Christianity by this false teaching. In other words, I think there's a false Christianity justification. What is it? Well, under a kind of disincarnate Christianity, we say, well, that's just imputed righteousness. That's a theoretical understanding rather than a real world being made right. Salvation, what is it? Well, in this Gnostic understanding, I think it means, oh, well, we'll go to heaven when we die. Rather than a real world present tense salvation in which we walk out and follow Jesus now. Predestination. What is that? Well, some people say that's individual souls. They're sent to heaven or hell. Uh, rather than the world itself is predestined in Christ for the righteousness of God. Even God's sovereignty. What is that? Oh, it's just, you know, in a kind of uh, uh, false Christianity, it's just God dictating, you know, we're all robots, rather than God's loving rule. What I'm describing is that every doctrine can be made a kind of false doctrine if we don't get this big picture correct. If we don't understand that the interpretive frame of Scripture is the incarnate Christ. Is God become man in Christ? The Antichrist would create a false Christianity. It would create an alternative theology. 
And I believe we can call this the disincarnate Christianity. On the order of a kind of idolatry. It would make justification devoid of incarnate social justice. It would make salvation devoid of the lived reality of new life in Christ. It would make predestination something that rids itself of all real world history. It would make sovereignty that, you know, it pictures God as controlling through a kind of transcendent fiat word that does not engage real world evil and death. We might say that this disincarnate Christianity is a non-apocalyptic Christianity. You say, oh, now he's using a word there I don't know. What is apocalypse? Oh, apocalypse is when God breaks into history, right? And that's what we think has happened. That it's apocalypse when Christ becomes man. Uh, that Christ has broken into history. John says, even now many antichrists have appeared, and from this we know that it is the last hour. What is the Christ? He's the one who's come into history. What is the Antichrist? They say, oh no, God's not in history. That there is no, you know, there's flesh and there's world and then there's spirit and then ever the twain shall meet. John says that is the Antichrist form of Christianity. And even the way that they will talk about eschatology or end times. John just used the word end time here. When did the end time begin? He says it begins now. We're in the end time. And what he means is that, you know, it's not we're waiting for the kingdom or that the kingdom, you know, in post-millennialism or pre-millennialism, that the kingdom is now. We're in this final age. Jesus' resurrection is the commencement of final days in the Jewish form of thought. John's teaching then centers upon this apocalyptic nature of the kingdom. The kingdom has broken in and we're defined by this kingdom. One of the key things here, you know, there has to be a proper understanding uh, of human death as central to sin. Jesus' incarnation, his life, his death, his resurrection, that's what defeats sin. And John, he's going to, this whole chapter is about abiding in Christ. He uses the term abide one time for the Antichrist. He says the Antichrist are those who abide in death. Um, N.T. Wright has described this. He says much 19th, 20th century Christian thought has accepted the framework of the Enlightenment in which Christian faith is primarily the role of rescuing people from the the evil world, ensuring them forgiveness in the present and heaven hereafter. I think this Enlightenment Christianity has all the tendencies of a Gnostic Antichrist Christianity. Or we might talk about a kind of, you know, uh, liberal social gospel in which the focus is on social transformation apart from the notion of the radical difference that Christ has made. You know, this is kind of Hegelianism in all of its various forms. Both are guilty of not acknowledging the full humanity and deity of Christ. Who is the liar, John says, but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? Verse 22. This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. The Christ, 
God, Jesus, you know, come together in the man. The Father and the Son are together. So John is going to, we've talked about this, he talks about light and darkness, life and death. He pictures these dualisms, not as real world dualisms, but to say that Christ bridges the gap. It's very much similar to what Paul says, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus the law, the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. This is of first importance. The passage that Dale read this morning for communion. I know nothing except Christ and him crucified is the end of that passage. That is of first importance. I resolved to know nothing. While I was with you, Paul also says in 2 Corinthians, except Jesus Christ and him crucified. This is the... This is the incarnation. This is where Christ encounters evil. I think that, you know, this is the thing that people like Marx and Freud and Feuerbach, they identify the problem and they get it right. They say that alienation is the central human problem. I think they've got it right. And in Christianity, we would say alienation is the central human problem. It's just that in Christianity, how we overcome that alienation is in and through the cross of Christ. Nietzsche, Friedrich Nietzsche, you know, the premier atheist. This is our true predicament. Together with the fear of man, we have lost the love of man, the affirmation of man, the will to man. Well, I'm not Nietzschean, but I think that in this, that inasmuch as we uh, fail to acknowledge the manhood of Christ, and then we've fallen in our, in, in our ability to love. And that's the thing that we're describing here. Why is this Antichrist teaching over and against love? T.S. Eliot has says, Our lives are mostly a constant evasion of ourselves and an evasion of the visible and sensible world. Albert Camus has said, it's harder to remain human than to leap beyond humanity. He says this in the plague. I think we can sum this up as a kind of disincarnate understanding or excarnation. This word points directly to the dynamic operative in the refusal to be fully human and to acknowledge the full humanity of Christ, which is interestingly the false teaching here. Carnal existence is punctuated with limitation, weakness, and pain. In a word, death, right? And more radically than anything else, the incarnation of death The fact that we die explains our disincarnate tendencies. And Jesus has come in the flesh. I know nothing except Christ and him crucified. That's the place we begin is the place that we would flee, you know, in this kind of false Christianity. And I think we can sum this up the way that John is going to do it by calling it idolatry. Paul says, you know, Turning to God from idols is the problem. John is going to talk about this same thing. Uh, 
I think we often miss what idolatry is. We picture idolatry as taking what is transcendent, God is transcendent, and we make that imminent. Well, idolatry displaces God. Idolatry makes God inaccessible. Idolatry, in this sense, might be said to make God absolutely transcendent. He's above us. He's beyond us. We can't, you know, whatever the God represents in the idol. Uh, So the idol turns us away from seeing ourselves. You know, in the beginning, we are described, the, the word idol is tselem. But it's also the word that is used for our image. We are created in the tselem of God. And we take that selim, that image, and we make an idol. You have to follow the move here to see what's happening in the the blurring of our image in God. In the original image, we understand, Adam and Eve understood, and I believe we in a renewed understanding in Christ, we understand who we are in and through the eyes of God. We understand our image is in his image and we get that because we relate ourselves to God as his children but in idolatry that's all shattered that's undone the idol is the image and we then become the arbiters of the idolater scene and there's this disconnectedness then from God even from ourselves which are not even taken into account Man himself is the originator of the gaze of the you know, idolater scene. And there's a refusal of the perspective of God. We no longer see things through the eyes of God. And the divine perspective then, by the very nature of idolatry, is blocked. And this is what the prophets do, right? The prophets come onto the scene and they introduce the divine gaze once more. And the idolatrous religion is interpreted by the prophets in a very strange way the idol is pictured as male the idolaters as female and there is again no connection between the two there is an impossibility of consummating this relationship it's complete alienation and i think that's the key here um there is, you know, and of course in this alienation, this is, there's this heightened desire for the idol, for that which is absent. Uh, and the, the sexual imagery is just to portray that heightened desire. I think we could say that idolatry is man's refusal to be man. Human refusal to be human. Idols offer an illusory exit from this world, from the land of death. And the idol then is a kind of transcendent picture. Christianity is by definition iconoclastic. Iconoclastic, that is, it means it breaks the idols. It breaks that open. Incarnation is iconoclasm. That's why John is saying the test of authentic Christianity, anyone who denies that Christ has come in the flesh, that's like idolatry. That's a false Christianity. This, you know, heaven by and by form of Gnostic Christianity is not iconoclastic, but it is on the order of a kind of idolatry.
And so resurrection grounds Christianity, death and resurrection, in an iconoclastic. You know, what's the first thing that Jesus does when he breaks the Roman seal on the tomb, right? It's already a kind of civil disobedience. It's a breaking of the, you know, what would the Romans say? You stay dead, Jesus. We put the seal here and Jesus breaks through that Roman seal on the stone. And idolatry then, I think, is the concrete example of sin in the Bible. The evil of idolatry must be conceived then in terms of alienation, this kind of excarnation, man's balking before the human mystery, his refusal to be human, and his refusal to allow God to be human in Christ. Uh, So it's just the opposite. I think it's not that we make God into a material form, but rather the idol is a visual aid to something. If you've ever been, this is true in Japan and in India both, a, a, a sophisticated Buddhist, he doesn't worship that physical image. That image, you know, a good Hindu doesn't need the idols. He rep- he, these idols represent some absolute transcendent uh, understanding. Uh, it's a supplement. Uh, we could almost describe, you know, Augustine's passage through a Manichaean materialism to a Plotinus's understanding of a dualism. That, that's the typical passage that takes place, but in Christianity we no longer inhabit, uh, you know, that dualism. So why are idols prohibited in Judaism? Because the idols reinforce that dualism, that separation. The Jewish commandment which prohibits images of God. There are many images, right? Moses sees the the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire. God appears to Abraham. It's not that God is so transcendent that he cannot be present. God appears many times in the Old Testament in a material form. He walks around the garden in the cool of the day. He gave the command to Moses against idolatry. I think not because of its material manifestation of God, but precisely the opposite, it displaces God. Think of, you know, Aaron, the, the idol appears out of the fire. Well, what, what, while they're worshiping the golden calf, what are they not doing? Well, Moses is up on the mountain talking to God. They're refusing God and displacing God with an idol. Um, so idolatry, you know, what we have in the appearances of God, it's not just a vertical, but it's a horizontal understanding. And this is what John is saying. You cannot love God whom you have not seen unless you love your neighbor whom you have seen. That relating to one's neighbor is precisely the terrain of Judaism. It's the terrain of Christianity. Our love of God and neighbor is simultaneous because where the divine dimension is present in our lives is in and through the neighbor, is in and through the human human reality. So no images of God does not point to some Gnostic 
experience of the divine, but just the opposite. It returns us to the imminent presence of God in Christ and in the church. As for you, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning, John says in verse 24. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. We're talking about an imminent, close, you know, abiding presence of God that would be displaced by this disincarnate, idolatrous sort of Christianity. And so Christianity is to be understood against this background as extending Jewish iconoclasm. Uh, asserting the identity of God and man. Jesus, the God-man, is not a departure from Judaism, but it's fulfillment. He is just another man, we might say, the God-man, but as the God-man, he incarnates the true nature of humanness and of deity. So biblical faith condemns idolatry first and foremost because it militates seriously against the human and worldly vocation of man. Nothing is more characteristic of the Bible than its defense of man and the world against the debilitating religions of the, you know, idolatrous religion. This is William Fraser. He says, the fresh and revolutionary truth of Israel's way was that it affirmed and supported the emergence of man, of human beings. So history is swept up into the divine life, into the Trinity. You are abiding in God and Christ is abiding in you. And this is then uh, the picture that we are, John says, the temple of God. Um, Here is the real foundation. You know, here is, uh, this is taking uh, our Christian faith in its iconoclastic sense very seriously. As for you, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. No man has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us. And his love is perfected in us. And this is a term, this word abide is there in the gospel, it's there in the epistles. And it demonstrates then those, it's over and against the Antichrist, the heretics, who will not abide. They're not abiding in the church. They're splitting themselves off. They don't let abide, you know, God abide in them through Christ. Uh, whereas God, John is saying, he's with you. He abides with you. His word abides in you. Uh, the believers have life, he says in 3.15. They have love, he says in 3.17. They have the anointing from God abiding in them, he says in verse 27. The Christians have a part in God's scheme, he says in 2.10, for they abide in light when they love their brothers. The, The word I'm repeating here again and again, they abide, they abide, and God abides in them. In 4.16, the love of God abides in them. It's also necessarily the love of the brother, right? Love is not demonstrated in these antichrists because they are unloving. They don't acknowledge this abiding presence of God in the body of Christ. But they've turned their backs on the fellowship. 
Can you love God outside of the body of Christ? Or do you love God in and through the body of Christ? That's the question John's raising. He says we love God then in and through the neighbor. We love God in and through the brother and sister. And you cannot separate those two things. The Antichrist, they abide, but John says they abide in death. They do not love. Uh, they do not, you know, they're not a part of the, those who remain in the fellowship. They don't love, uh, they don't love the fellowship that we have with God. They're turning their backs on the church. If you think of, you know, this is the creation of these temple communities in which God's presence will be made known. The ongoing presence, you know, of God is here with us. He's abiding. That's the precise word that is used in John when he says, I go and prepare an abiding place for you. Oh, where is that? Is that he's building, a, he's doing carpentry work up in the sky somewhere, you know, sawing us, building us a nice little room? No, that abiding place is the family of God, the church. He's gone before us. This room has many mansions, or this, this man, yeah, there's many rooms in this mansion because it's the church. That is the abiding place of God. This is what Christ has prepared for us. The word is dwell, live with, remain. Uh, this is the picture in the, you know, the uh, closing chapters of John. He says that my word will dwell with you. Dwelling is you know, between the Father and Jesus and the Holy Spirit. And we will dwell with you as we dwell with one another. The Father who dwells in Jesus, the paraclete or, or uh, the Holy Spirit dwells with believers. The Father and Jesus make their dwelling. The word is used again and again. Dwell, abide, that John is using here in chapter 2. Where does God abide? He abides in his temple. Where is his temple? You are the temple of God. So the subject throughout, you know, chapter 14 of John, actually it's God coming to man. It's not believers going somewhere else to dwell with God in some, but it's heaven come to earth. The Holy Spirit has come to us to dwell with us. It's a descending movement from the divine realm to the human realm, not an ascending movement. What the Antichrist would do, they would ascend to God through some sort of ecstatic experience, through their Gnostic secret knowledge. But God has come to us in Christ. He's given us the gift of the Holy Spirit and we have this abiding presence. Uh, We are that presence. We are that household. We are, you know, the Uh, dwelling place of God so Jesus going to the Father that's simultaneously the picture of his building this temple for the disciples but we know the temple is not a temple of wood or stone or you know of gold or whatever you want to call it no the temple is people And he says to the disciples, you're going to do greater things than I've done. What is this greater work? Well, this greater work is filling up the temple of God. This greater work is bringing in other people to dwell in this presence of God. This is the great ongoing work 
the redemptive work that John is now describing in his epistle. Uh, the Antichrist would turn people away from the body of Christ. They would turn them away from the fellowship of the saints to some sort of private, secret, you know, individualistic understanding. And John pictures throughout his gospel and in, in the epistles the idea of an abiding, restful union together. It's, you know, there in, even in the prologue of the gospel, the word was with God. The only begotten is in the bosom of the Father. Uh, it appears again and again. You know, John leans against the bosom of Jesus. There's this final togetherness in the scenes. And now he's describing how we can continue to dwell together. Little children, abide in him. So that when he appears we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame and his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone also who practice righteousness is born of him. Let's sing our hymn of it.